All right, well, like I said, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. It is good to be with you this morning. We, this fall, we have been studying uh, Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. And what we've done is we've framed our study of the Ten Commandments inside the context of, of one of the most central storylines of the Bible, and that is, is that God is making a people for himself, a people who are made in his image, who live for the praise of his glory and, and throughout that storyline, the primary way in which God's people bear his image, who they reflect his nature and glory, is by obeying his commands. And the reason for that is because God's commands, they don't just tell us what God wants, they tell us what God is like. They're, they're a revelation of his character and of his nature, of, of who he is. And so at the heart of the Ten Commandments isn't a list of rules to follow, but rather it's a description about what it looks like for us to worship God what it looks like for us to reflect his nature, his character, his values, to image him, to reflect him to the world. And I hope as well that you've seen in our study so far that this, this life of worship unto God that the Ten Commandments calls us to, uh, it, it's, it's not just something you have to kind of suck up and muscle weight your way through. It's, it's not just something you have to kind of grit and bear it, just kind of like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough, so I'm just going to have to make it happen instead. What I hope that you've seen is that the, the invitation of a life of worship that God calls us to in the Ten Commandments is actually a life of incredible blessing and freedom and joy because they show us the way that life was meant to be lived, the, the way that life works best when we live it in accordance with God's design for, for our lives and for our work. We saw in the very first commandment how this life of freedom and blessing, it begins with, it actually hinges on our relationship with God See, the first man calls us to worship God supremely and exclusively, to, to see him as the one thing that we must have, the, the one thing that we couldn't be happy without, the one thing that if, that we, that if we, we would be crushed to lose it or that would be furious if it was kept from us. See, the, the first man calls us to, to have God be the overwhelming, controlling influence in our hearts and our lives. And so as we study the 10th commandment this morning, the very last one, which is about coveting, we're going to see the foundation of the first command all over again. You see, like the first, it points us to the thing that causes us to break all of the other commands. You see, it's worshiping someone or something other than God. You see, at the heart of both of these commands is a call to reject idolatry. It's a call to reject allowing anyone or anything besides God to, to become the object of our worship, to become the overwhelming, controlling influence in our heart and our life. And so these two commands against idolatry, they bookend the rest of the commands because they are at the heart of all of the other commands. You see, if you keep the first and the tenth, you'll keep all the others. They're really about the same thing. And so as we close our time in the Ten Commandments this week, what I want to show you in this final command is that, it, that the obedience that God calls his people to is an obedience that begins in the heart you see, it's not just enough to keep some external rules. You get, God isn't simply concerned about our external actions. He's concerned. He cares about the very desires of our heart. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage as we think about the 10th command this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the last of the 10 commands, simply reads this way. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So 
Four questions that we have been our roadmap for our study of the Ten Commandments for each of them so far. Four questions, simply this. How, how does this command instruct us? Number two, how does this command reveal God to us? Number three, how does this command confront us? And lastly, how does the gospel transform us and enable us to obey this command? So we begin with question one, number one. What, what instruction is God giving us in the Tenth Command not to covet? Well, that word covet is, is, isn't one that we really use much today. It's not one that you see kind of tossed around in common language. But fundamentally, it means to, to crave or to yearn for something that you don't have. Now, wanting something isn't necessarily bad, uh, but we covet whenever we set our hearts on someone or something or some experience, thinking that that thing, that situation, that person, whatever it is, will, will actually satisfy, that it'll make us happy, that it'll really fulfill us. The Puritan preacher Thomas Watson, he described coveting as the insatiable desire of getting the world. The insatiable desire of getting the world. You want to see coveting up close and personal? Just take your kids to the Farm and Fleet Toyland, right? right? You, you could buy your kid every single toy in the entire Toyland, and tomorrow they would see something else that they would need to have. But if we're honest, don't, don't we kind of, as adults, don't we kind of just do the same thing? Right? Shopping is a hobby. There's like literally holidays dedicated to shopping, right? It started with Black Friday. Now there's Cyber Monday. There's probably going to be like something else on Tuesday coming up, right? Anyways, but we even joke about shopping being kind of like this retail therapy. And the reason it's funny is because it's like slightly true, right? There's a little bit of truth to it. You see, we have this insatiable desire for more and more. And satisfaction, it always feels like it's just two-day free prime shipping away. We call it chasing the American dream, but the Bible describes it more as coveting. You see, unlike the other commands, what this command addresses isn't just our external behaviors, See, the 10th command actually addresses our hearts. See, ultimately, coveting is a sin of the heart. It's a sin of desire. Janie Ortland, one commentator, she writes this way. She says, the 10th command speaks directly to our hearts. Rather than forbidding an action, it forbids a state of mind, an attitude of the heart. This command makes us ask ourselves the question, what do we really long for in life? Now, to be clear, the 10th commandment isn't, isn't, uh, isn't condemning all desire in general, right? In the Old Testament accounts of Sarah and Hannah, we see that desire for kids can be a good desire. In, in the Song of Solomon, we see that a desire for sexual intimacy can be a good desire. Proverbs encourages us to plan and to work so that we can improve our lives financially. And so there's, there's not something inherently wrong with having being wise with your finances or wanting to save money. Additionally, Proverbs affirms the desire for a spouse being a good thing. And obviously the desire for God himself is a good desire. See, the, the thinking that desire itself is bad, that's actually a, a Buddhist form of thinking. It's not a Christian form of thinking. See, Buddhism fundamentally tells you that you need to annihilate all of your desires. Right? And that, that when you have gotten rid of all of your desires, when you are in a state of uh, where your desires are no more, then that's when you're saved. That's when you are fully free. You see, but that's not what the 10th command teaches us or the rest of the Bible for that matter. You see, the Bible says that our problem isn't that we have desires. It's that we desire the wrong things in the wrong ways at the wrong times for the wrong reasons. 
Trevin Wax, another commentator, he writes it this way. He says, we're, we were created to love God and love people. And when we don't love God as we ought, our desires get all out of whack. That messes up the way that we're meant to relate to people. And instead of loving people, we covet their stuff. Instead of desiring our neighbor's good, we desire their goods for ourselves." You see, we usually associate coveting with material possessions, and it's right to do that, right? The 10th command highlights a bunch of material things, kind of property-related things that we aren't to covet, uh, right? It talks about uh, houses and livestock, all that kind of stuff. Today, most people aren't that interested in oxes and donkeys. Maybe that's your thing. I don't know, right? Like, I know there's like a pygmy goat thing that people really feel like they need to have some goats, but I mean, that's your thing, okay, right? But most of us today are, instead of, coveting, instead of coveting donkeys or oxen or livestock, instead we, we covet bigger houses or better cars or faster technology or nicer clothes or a million other trivial products. We, we think, I'm just so tired of living in this neighborhood. Why can't we just live somewhere nicer? When will we be able to afford some nicer place? Why can't Chip and Joanna just fix her upper my house, right? That would be the thing that would just really make my world better. We look at our neighbors and we think, man, they have so much nice stuff. They have such a nice house or cars or clothes. Man, why can't I have that, those things? And we, we think it's not fair. Our friends, they take these amazing vacations. They're going to the Grand Canyon and Hawaii and, and wherever else. And you're like, I'm just trying to get to Grandma's, right? Like, that's, like if we make it to Grandma's house, that's going to be a miracle. It's going to be, right? That, that's all I'm really looking for. We're dissatisfied. See, but it's not, just, it's not just things that we covet. We also covet relationships. Your, your neighbor's wife is included in that list. You see, we look at other people's marriages and we think, they just seem so happy. Why can't, why, I'm not happy. Why can't my marriage just be a happy one? We, we look at other people's husbands or wives and we think, I wish I would have just married somebody like that. My life would be so much better if I wouldn't have married the person that I married or, or that I'd just be happier if my spouse was more like this X, Y, or Z. You see, but if that wasn't enough, the verse ends that we shouldn't covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. You see, the list isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be suggestive. It's meant to give examples of all the things because the reality is that we're forbidden to covet anything at all. You see, maybe what your heart really longs for is someone else's attributes. Maybe you look at their age or their looks or, or their intelligence or their talents and you just think, man, if I could just have that, then, then I would be successful, then life would be meaningful, then I would be have what I'm looking for. Maybe what you covet is somebody else's situation in life. Maybe you would kill to have an extended family you didn't want to kill, right? Maybe you, just lo- you would just long for this kind of extended family situation that is perfect and ideal. Maybe you look at the close friendships that other people have and you think, if I could just have one really close friend like that, then I'd finally be happy. Maybe you, give your, maybe you would give your spare kidney just to get married, or if you could be single again. Maybe you are desperate to have children or to go back to a time before you had children. Maybe you look at the behavior of other people's kids and you think, Wow, they're like, they're just so great. I, my kids need like a UN negotiations expert just to get their dinner eaten, right? Like, why can't it just be easier? Or maybe what you really crave, what you think would really fulfill, would make you happy is somebody else's accomplishments, their career, their promotion, their ministry role, the recognition that they have, the reputation that they have, the, the respect that they have from others. You see, the list is endless. 
See, we're always looking for someone or something to fulfill and satisfy, to, to really make us happy. The reality is that these things aren't inherently bad things. They're not, they're not, they're not inherently wrong desires. See, but to become covetous desires, to become wrong desires when we look to those things to be and to do what only God was meant to be and do for us. And so the question is, how can you tell the difference between a desire that is good and one that is full of coveting? How can you tell if, if a desire for the same thing can be a healthy, good desire, but also in a wrong, covetous desire? How do you tell the difference? And here's a few questions that might be helpful for you as you wrestle with that. But ultimately, I just want to encourage you, ask God to show you what's going on in your heart. I can give you a few good ideas or a few good questions, but ultimately what you need is the God's Spirit to show you what's happening in your own heart. So, so ask him. So a couple of questions that will help. One, what would happen if you found out that you could never have the thing that you wanted? Or if you got it, and whatever it was, was taken away from you. What, what would happen? How would you respond? If you, if you found out you physically couldn't ever have kids, or, or if you wanted to get married, but that was not going to happen in the next five years for sure. If you, if, if, you could, if you found out that that job promotion that you have been working for and striving for for the past year was given to somebody else, if you think, you know what, I would be disappointed. I might even be frustrated. But you know what, like, I'd be okay. It's not the end of the world. I, that's probably evidence of a healthy desire. But, but if when you're honest with yourself, if when you're actually honest with yourself, you think, man, if that promotion that I've been working my tail off for was given to somebody else, I would be crushed. Like that, I would be like, what is the point of even working here anymore? What is the point of being here? Why have I wasted my time? This is, this is pointless. You'd be devastated or, or depressed or, or rather you'd be angry or you'd be furious with whoever or whatever kept you from, from getting the thing that you really wanted or, or whatever took it from you. You see, if that's the way that you think that you'd respond, then that's a pretty good evidence that whatever it is that you're longing for isn't a healthy desire. It's one that's marked by coveting. Question number two, do the people around you feel loved or used? Do the people around you feel loved or used? See, coveting always leads to seeing people as a means to an end. Coveting always leads to seeing people as a means to an end. See, do you love, thing, do you, do you love things and use people, or do you love people and use things? See, in your work, do you have a just do whatever it takes mentality? Do your employers, do your employees or your coworkers, do they, do they see themselves, do they, do they think that you view them as partners or as problems? Do they, do they see themselves as friends or as footstools for you? At home, does your family, do they feel prioritized or do they feel ignored? Do they feel like you're just kind of giving them the sloppy seconds and you're giving your best somewhere else? Do they feel like objects of your attention or obstacles to the goals that you have or the personal freedom that you are looking for? You see, we may not mean to hurt those around us, but what happens when coveting is ruling our hearts is that we're often blind to the ways that even the people we say that we really love the most are being affected. Question number three, are you living beyond your means you see, when it comes to your finances, how much money do you have on credit cards? How much do you spend in relation to your income? Or are you always spending to the limit and beyond? You see, when you're living beyond your means, just kind of throwing your money around here and there, things you don't really have, that's a pretty good sign that you are ensnared by a covetous desire. Do you give? 
Do you give, and if you do, is it, is it generous? Is it sacrificial? Or is it just kind of like begrudging, skimpy, if you got some extra at the end, right? Is it just like, God, you better see this because like this is hurting and I, you make, make sure you know what I'm doing here. When it comes to your time, do you work way too much? Do you never have time for your family or community or church? Do you, do you play way too much? Do you not do a good job in your work or stewarding what God has given you? See, if overworking or laziness characterize how you spend your time, then likely whatever is driving those behaviors is a covetous desire. Question number four. Are you genuinely happy for other people when you see them receive blessing or success? Are you able to be happy genuinely for others when you see them receive blessing or success? You see, there's always something envious about coveting, about a covetous desire. Is you feel a sense of dissatisfaction because you don't have something that someone else has, and there's a sense of discontentment. And what happens is we we kind of secretly start to resent people or situations that have something we don't have. You see, if you have kids, or if you even just served in the nursery here for like 15 minutes, right? What you'll know is that nothing arouses a kid's desire for something more than someone else holding that thing, right? Right? They could have walked past it 73 times, but now someone else is holding that, and it's just like, I must have it. It must be mine immediately. Right? That's the reason why we have a lot of identical pairs of many things at our house. Right? I'm just not trying to fight those battles every day. Right? We got two of every color cup and plate because those are just a battle we don't need to fight. Right? See, as adults, we're a little more subtle, but we do the same thing. See, coveting is what causes that twinge of, of bitterness or of envy when someone else gets the thing that we are really longing for. You see, when your coworker gets the promotion that you wanted, when your roommate gets engaged and you are still single, when your neighbor gets that new car that you have been dreaming of, when someone else is recognized for their hard work but you are omitted, when another church or small group seems like it's growing or multiplying but yours isn't, See, we're always comparing ourselves to others, and we resent it when we don't get what others have. James 4 says it this way, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You see, when, we are, when coveting is ruling our heart, we can't actually be happy for others. We can't actually see the success or the blessings of others as good because we need it to be for ourselves. Fifth, is there something you already have that you think you couldn't live or be happy without? Is there something you already have that you feel like you couldn't live or be happy without? See, some people aren't interested in bigger and better. They just don't want to give up the satisfaction and the safety and security that they already have. You see, the problem isn't working hard. The problem isn't saving. It's not being responsible with your resources. There are plenty of proverbs that commend us towards all of those things. No, the problem is when we say, we need this thing, this person this situation, this, this object, in order to be happy. Without it, we, cu- we couldn't possibly be satisfied. We, would, we couldn't possibly be fulfilled. You see, it's easy to think of coveting something as desiring something we don't have, but the truth is, is that you might be coveting if what you have is something you could never give up. Lastly, do you find yourself frequently grumbling about your house or your spouse or your job or the quality or the quantity of the stuff that you have or just your general state of life? 
See, the story is often told to the reporter who asked the billionaire, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, how much money does it take to be happy? And his answer, famously, he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. See, like Rockefeller, we need just a little bit more. We think, if only I had a boyfriend or girlfriend, if only I were engaged, if, if only the wedding were finally here, if only we had kids, if, if only we finally had a house, if only we finally had grandkids, if only we were retired, if only we could do the things we wanted to do. You see, there's always a next thing. It's easy to think that the next thing will finally make us happy. It's always the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. When pastor described it as the cult of the next thing, he says, it's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default, not by choosing, but by failing to resist. He says the never-ending message of the cult of the next thing is to crave and spend and buy for the kingdom of stuff is here. You see, we are so tempted to belong to the kingdom and the cult of the next thing. You see, because our hearts are full of sinful desire, rather than being satisfied with what we have, we always crave something else. Instead of being, instead of being content, we covet. You see, the 10th commandment, it serves for us as a mirror into our souls, revealing if we are willing to look carefully enough, our functional God's the person, the places, the things that we feel like we couldn't live without, the things that are the overwhelming, controlling influences on our heart and life. And in turn, what we see is that we reveal the lies that we, that we believe about the true God himself. See, and that brings us to what this command reveals about God. You see, when we, when we covet, we're, we're questioning God's provision and his goodness. We're functionally believing that God is not big enough to help us or provide for us, or that if he is, he's not good enough to care. We, our perpetual discontentment is an expression of how much we think that God still owes us, how much he, he should still be giving us. Our belief is that he's keeping something good from us. Ultimately, coveting reveals that we think that God himself is not enough. You see, but that's not who God is. You see, the God who calls us not to covet is not some selfish, narcissistic tyrant who just wants us to kind of suffer and live dissatisfied, unfulfilled lives, just suffering for some greater cause. No, in fact, the way the Bible describes God is exactly the opposite. He's a God who wants to satisfy our deepest desires. He wants us to, to fulfill us in on the most deep way. And what he does is he offers us the only thing that can truly satisfy us. It's himself. See, the truth is that we are made for God. We are made to worship him as his commissioned image bearers. We are made to enjoy him as his beloved children. See, the first commandment God says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he's saying, you shall love me. You shall treasure me. You shall enjoy me. You shall relish me. And in the 10th commandment, God says, you shall not covenant. In other words, what God is saying is, let me fill your heart so full that you won't desire anything else to be the source of your ultimate happiness and satisfaction. See, the reality is that we want fleeting worldly pleasures, but God knows what we really actually are longing for. God says, I can give you something much better and more lasting than all of the trivial trinkets that this world has to offer. In John chapter 6, 35, Jesus declares of himself, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be 
thirsty. He's talking about the satisfaction and the fulfillment that your soul is longing for. He says, I am what you are looking for. See, Jesus doesn't offer himself as a better way of getting the things that we think we want. He offers himself as the fulfillment of the deepest desires of our heart. See, in your heart's longing for power, see, what you're really longing for is the kind of recognition and the kind of influence and the kind of victory that only a sovereign God of the universe can give you. In your insatiable need for control over your own life and your circumstances and your situations, what you're really longing for is the kind of safety and security that only a God who is all-powerful and who is good can actually give you. In your endless pursuit of comfort and of personal freedom, what you're really longing for is the kind of rest and peace that only a good God can actually offer you. In your desperate need for the approval of others from your family, from your co-workers, from whoever it might be, what you're really longing for is the kind of unconditional acceptance and love that only Jesus has offered you. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. Instead, they were only meant to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So I must take care never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo, a mirage. You see, coveting, it manifests itself in different ways, in different people, all the time. You see, but fundamentally, it is all the same. We are seeking satisfaction and contentment in worldly pleasures apart from God. See, this is what this is why in Colossians 3.15 the Apostle Paul, he describes coveting as idolatry. He describes coveting as, as the worship of something other than God. See, when we covet, what we're doing is we're placing God-like expect- expectations on people and things and ideas. In essence, breaking the tenth command, you shall not covet is, is a manifestation of breaking the first command that we should have no other gods before God. You see, and that brings us to how this command confronts us. You see, it can seem kind of strange that the Ten Commandments, they start with these lofty ideals, right? That we should worship the one true God, that we should worship him only. And, and that it kind of seems like with this trivial ending, like stop looking at donkeys and stop caring about meaningless stuff, right? But do you see how those two things are connected? Do you see why the first and the tenth are really bookends that sum up the rest? You see, God is saying, I am the one thing that your heart and your soul is longing for. You see, don't turn to animals or people or anything else. Don't let anything else become the overwhelming, controlling influence in your heart and your life. He says, I am enough. Worship me. Be satisfied in me. See, and the reality is that coveting is the symptom that reveals better than anything else the depth of our depravity and the, the reality of the, the, the sobering reality of the disease of sin in our hearts. You see, we don't just have some external behavior problem. We have a heart-level problem. You see, the idolatrous sin of our hearts is the, the root of all the sinful actions. And one commentator said it this way, sinful deeds, they always start with sinful desires. See, the 10th commandment is the nail in the coffin to thinking that obedience 
to the Ten Commands is something that you can do merely by, by, by uh, trying to modify your external behavior. No, as Jesus himself would make explicit in the Gospels, see, the obedience that God demands is one that begins in the heart. See, it's not enough to keep some external rules, even if you could. This command takes us right down to the deepest interior of our beings. It shows us the depravity and the dire consequences of our desires themselves. James, again, he explains it this way in, in, in his book in the New Testament. He says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, far from being anticlimactic, see the 10th command more than any other, as Martin Luther himself recognized, more than any other, the 10th command convinces us that we are sinners. See, for even if we could keep all of the other commands, the reality is that this one's impossible. Every single one of us is in desperate need for a Savior. You see, we see our sinful hearts, but no matter how much we try, we just can't change them. So you can work on external behaviors. You can, you can conform your external actions. You see, but how do you change the things you love? How do you change the things you long for? You can't do it. You don't have the power to do it. But the good news of the gospel, as Janie Orland again writes, she's just so insightful, I think she reads this, she says, is the good news of the gospel is that God knows how to do the impossible, for he can change the human heart so that we trust him with all our lives, with every detail, right down to what occupies the desire settings in our souls. For he is in the business of transforming self-centered, self-serving, self-loving human beings into Christ-honoring, Christ-serving, Christ-loving people. People. God, through the power of his spirit, can fill our hearts with so much love for him that there is no room left for envy and jealousy and coveting. You see, the beauty of the gospel, I need you to hear this this morning. See, the beauty of the gospel is that the way God transforms our heart is not by, it's not by shaming you. It's not by guilting you. It's not by, he doesn't come to you and say, how could, how could you love something more than me? How could you want this thing more than me? That's not how God does it. No, instead what happens is God patiently, he lets us run after whatever we think will fulfill and satisfy so that we'll find it lacking, so that we will find it unfulfilling, that we will find it doesn't really give the kinds of things we're looking for it to give. And in the midst of our endless searching and striving, he opens our eyes to see and experience and to encounter the one thing that your soul is really craving for. It's a relationship with him. And he lets you find yourself satisfied by him in a way that nothing else has ever satisfied. Thomas Chalmers, you've heard me quote him before, he refers to this as the expulsive power of a new affection. I read this quote to you. It's one you've heard me before, and I do it because it is so importantly powerful. He says this. He says, Neither you nor anyone else can dispossess the heart of an old affection. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And if that new affection be the love of God, then it shall draw the heart of the sinner towards him. 
You see, what he's saying is that your heart, it was made to covet. It was made to long insatiably for something because God made your heart as an organ of deep desire and it demands to be filled with something. You see, your, can't, your heart just can't be empty. It can't be blank. It, you can't just leave it desireless. You see, the cure for covetous heart is to learn to desire the right things, to, to long for Jesus, for his grace, for his mercy, for his nearness to you. See, he is the thing that your soul is longing for. He is the one thing that your heart was designed to find fulfillment and satisfaction in. He's the, he's the one thing when you find him that is the only way you're able to actually be content. You see, contentment, it's the positive side of this last command. It's the remedy for a covetous desire. And the secret to contentment is to be so satisfied with God that we are able, able to accept whatever he has decided to provide or not. That's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4.13, probably the most misquoted coffee cup verse of all time, right? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not talking about soccer or the Olympics, right? He's not talking about that stuff. What he's saying is he says, he says I am saying that I've learned how to be content in abundance and in lack. Whether I am abounding or whether I am lacking, he says in Philippians 4, I have found the secret to being content, he says. See, and it's being satisfied in Jesus. See, when we come to Jesus, what we receive is forgiveness for our sins. Through his death and his resurrection, we receive the promise of eternal life with God. We receive the promise that he will never leave us and he is not going to forsake us, that he will help us through all of the trials of life, that he will be the bread of life, the thing that really satisfies our souls. He's saying, I am what your soul is longing for. I'm the thing that you need. So what else are you looking for? You see, some of you are here this morning and you have spent your whole lives coveting. You you have looked always to the next someone or something to truly fulfill and to truly satisfy that insatiable longing in your soul. And as Romans 1 says, that God has given you over to those desires. And what you're finding is that they are endlessly not working. The spouse that you longed for isn't the one you had hoped for. Even the best ones don't satisfy. The, the house that you had longed for, it's, it finally is great, but it, you find yourself keep longing to improve it and improve it and improve it and improve it endlessly. The, the, the situation, the job promotion that you thought would be the end of the line is just the next one, and you see the next thing after it. There's always a next thing. What you're finding is that you are here this morning because God in his gracious love and patience for you is pursuing you. He is waking you up to the reality that he is what you are looking for. And the question this morning is, will you have him? Will you have him? You see, will you let him be the satisfier of your soul that he is offering to be? Or will you go on, as C.S. Lewis describes, making mud pies in the slums because you can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea? You see, everything this world has to offer, God is better. It no, it, there isn't a comparison. God wins every time. And the question is, will you have him? Will you look to him to be the thing your soul is looking for? See, but others of you are here this morning, and you know the life that Jesus offers. You know that he is the satisfier of your soul. You have encountered and experienced the life that he gives, the fulfillment that he gives, But the reality is you find yourself distracted, running after other things. 
The question is, how do we set our eyes on the, the eyes of our hearts on what truly satisfies? How do, we, how do we pursue being ongoingly satisfied by Jesus? Three short things I want to suggest as we wrap up our time this morning. All of them can be summed up by these words by uh, Trevin Wax. He says, when we focus on things, our vision of God is dimmed. But when we focus on God, our care for things is dimmed. You see, three things I want to encourage you to do as you set the eyes of your heart on the thing that really satisfies. And one is this, remember the truth. You see, when you are tempted to covet or wallow in dissatisfaction, remember how much you have in Christ. Remember how much God has given you. Remember the only thing that God owed you was punishment for your sin, but he gave you his own son. He gave you mercy. He gave you grace. He gave you forgiveness. He gave you unmerited, irrevocable love. Ask him to remind you the truth of his abundant generosity for you. Let that lead you to number two. Number two, to be thankful for the ways that God has already blessed you. In Proverbs 15, the father encourages his son to avoid uh, adultery and sexual sin by treasuring and enjoying the wife that God has blessed him with. Proverbs 5.15, it reads, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, that your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. You see, when you're tempted to covet and wallow in dissatisfaction and discontent, ask God to remind you how he has graciously blessed you and abundantly provided for you already. Instead of asking God, why haven't you given me X, Y, or Z, ask him to remind you of all the things that he has already generously provided for you. You see, thankfulness is an incredibly powerful weapon against coveting. It's incredibly powerful. Lastly this morning, Set your eyes on the eternal blessings that God has in store for you. Set your eyes on the eternal blessings God has in store for you. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse uh, 3 reads this way. For praise be to God in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, that can never spoil, that will never fade. I don't know about you, but I find myself so easily distracted by the next shiny thing. Thinking that something will satisfy. Really, it's just this momentary distraction for me. For a while, what I needed to do was just to write down all the stuff I felt myself just longing after. I actually made an Amazon wish list of all the stuff that I was like longing for. And that's so I could come back later and buy it when I had the resources or when it wasn't controlling me. But so I could look back on that list of stuff and to see that it never actually satisfied. The stuff I longed for but I haven't thought about in months, it's still there. It wasn't going to fulfill the things that I desired and got that I look back on now that didn't actually give what they wanted. That I find myself just longing for something else. And as I would add things to the list, what I would be reminded of each time is that none of this stuff will give life. None of this stuff satisfies. None of it fulfills. It's just a flash in the pan. Janie Ortland, she writes this one last time from her this morning. She's just a brilliant writer. She says, God loves us in this command by helping us see that as long as we are seeking our happiness in things and people and circumstances, we will never find real satisfaction. Things break People disappoint. Circumstances, they inevitably change. And so God warns us not to hunger after these things. God knows what we really want, not just what we think we want. He sees into our very hearts. He tells us not to covet so that we will learn to deal with our relentless.
relentless, restless discontent. You see, people, positions, possessions, they never really satisfy. Even the best things in life are just a shadow of the true thing that we are meant to crave. The one thing that fulfills, and it's Jesus himself. And I ask you again this morning, the question I want to put in front of you is, will you have him? Will you have him? Will you let him be the thing that satisfies your soul? Not just one day, but every day. See, as we come to the end of our study of the Ten Commandments, we are met by the unmistakable reality that we are sinners in need of a Savior Even if we could keep all of the other commands externally, our hearts would still condemn us, you see. But each week as we celebrate communion, what we're doing is we're remembering that the Savior and the satisfier of our souls has already come. He has come to meet our need for forgiveness and our need for fulfillment. And because because we are so prone to forgetting, we choose to remember every week. You see, reminding ourselves that Jesus' body, that his blood, that they were broken and shed for us. And he received the penalty, not only for our sinful actions, but our sinful desires, so that we might receive the reward of his pure heart and his pure life. You see, communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. You see, all it does is for us is a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done person and the work of him so that we might be filled with a love for him that overflows in obedience unto him see the bread and the juice are in the back there's a table on the left and on the right and during our time of worship you go back and you dip the bread in the juice and you take communion in that way and as we sing as we worship as remember god the gospel together in song this morning if you've put your trust in Jesus, if, if he is the savior you are looking for and the, the satisfier of your soul, then go back and take communion. Do it as a joyful reminder of all that he has done for you. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if not, if Jesus is not your treasure, if he is not the satisfier of your soul, if he is not yet your forgiver and your leader, I'd encourage you to hold off on taking communion. You are welcome here. This community is for you. You are welcome here. You see, but instead of taking communion, I'd encourage you to come to Jesus. Ask him to be the one you're looking for. Ask him to be the satisfier your soul is longing for. So as we take communion this morning, as we sing, I encourage you to talk with God. Confess your heart to him. Be honest with him about what's going on. Be honest with him about the things your heart is longing for, the things you're looking for, the things you are desiring and worshiping other than him. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. Ask him to transform your heart. Ask him to give you a new heart, a heart that longs for him more than anything else, a heart that is actually satisfied by him. Ask him to do those things for your good, but ultimately for his glory. So that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning, God, with thankful hearts. God, thankful to remember all that you've done for us. God, and I know I have gone long this morning. God, but I pray that you would be gracious. God, to use the words I've spoken. God, to be graciously at work within our hearts. Not because I have anything important to say, God, but because your word calls us to life in you. And so, God, would you cause us to be satisfied in you. 
God, for those who are here this morning and they have never found life in you, they've been always looking to something else to satisfy their souls. God, I pray that this morning they would choose to look to you to be the satisfier of their soul. God, for those of us who are here, we find ourselves distracted from what we know is true life. God, we pray that you'd be graciously uh, helping us, uh, giving us the expulsive power of a new affection for you, one that fills our hearts with satisfaction in you so that we might live ultimately for your glory in the world. God, we can't do any of that on our own. We really need you. God, for our good, for your great glory, we ask, would you do it? In your good name we pray. Amen.